Well, good morning, everybody. Excellent. Thanks, Dane, for that. Just a, a, a warning, I'm starting to lose my voice. That's probably Dane's fault for yakking all night, but we'll, we'll persevere nonetheless. In our first session yesterday, we introduced the concept of um, the two different views on the judgment seat, probably the two most uh, dominant views that we have in the Brotherhood about the judgment seat. We said there's a concept we called the short view that was based on, on grace and recognition by, uh, by our Lord and contrasted that to a view we called the long view, which is sort of a, a view that involves looking at our works and our life actions and arriving at some sort of verdict out as a result of that. And we said, well, which is a view that we, uh, we think support, is supported by Scripture? And in fact, both views have a lot of support and a lot of um, underlying sort of evidence in the Bible that, to support them. So what we have attempted to do is reconcile those views together into a, a, a model of the judgment seat that, that is consistent with all those different verses, that they all can be read into it and, and, uh, and make sense. So we said we want to reconcile a number of concepts, this week together, we want to reconcile things like, like the parables, for example. One parable says that everyone gets the same reward, a penny a day, and another parable says, well, there's proportional rewards. People get different rewards based on, on the results they've achieved or, or what they've done in their life. And we said, well, how are, we going to, how are we going to tie that in? We looked at trying to reconcile things like the, the, the process of the judgment seat. The sheep and the goats parable indicates it's a sort of culling process that takes place very early. Whereas the parable of the pounds and the cities, or the miners, as, as one translation has, um, indicates a, a, an account-giving process that takes much longer and goes into much more detail. So we want to try and reconcile those as well. And this is our this is our little objective. At the end of our, our week together, I'm going to try and get everyone here to contribute to trying to reconcile these concepts. Now this is the Apostle Paul himself, and in in, in uh, Second Timothy he says. And speaks with absolute confidence. There, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. Absolute confidence that the judge will give him this crown. And yet, First Corinthians 4, he says, I can't, I don't really know what the judge is going to say about my, my life and the things that I've done until the day arrives. And you think, well, how do we reconcile those? But we, we can and we will, and we'll get to that as we go through. So we suggested um, yesterday that Instead of these two views being sort of competing views, they are in fact um, different stages in, in the process of the judgment seat and they both serve a purpose and that's really where we want to head now and look at the, the purpose that both of these stages or phases, whatever word we want to use, um, achieve. So there is, a, there is, we believe, a short event where we are accepted or rejected in, in, in a, based upon grace and, and, and something that is not to do with our works necessarily, it's, it's because of our... Our, our, um, the fact that we are in Christ and, and the fact that God recognises us as such. And then our life is reviewed and we're going to talk about that um, in our subsequent studies as to why that happens. So we also made this suggestion that the judgment seat's not a verdict-based process. It's not a binary result sort of thing. Yes, you're in and no, you're out. You know, it's, if there's something, there's more layers to it than that it's, it's, it's more it's more complex than that and there's there's more nuance than just a in and out sort of result um we suggest that it is the final phase in the whole process of god manifestation 
the final phase of our development when God is bringing many sons to glory. It's the final icing on the cake or it's the final part of that process that God has begun in us and he finishes it there uh, through Christ and we're presented faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. Now, just in case you're thinking a lot of these ideas, some of them may sound novel to you, you may not have heard some of them before, but I'm going to be at pains to emphasise throughout the course of our week. They're not, they're not sort of in ideas that I've just come up with and made up myself. I've researched literature of the truth and Christadelphia magazine, Testimony magazine. I've, I've scoured the Brotherhood looking for ideas on the judgment seat. And, and while I know it's a little bit boring to do this, but I'm going to from time to time put up extracts from books by, by Christadelphians uh, and, and just give you an insight to what other uh, brethren have written about this subject to show you that it's not just something I'm making up to suit my personality or my stage of life or what I, you know, I'm trying to sort of make a point. These are these concepts are, are well and truly entrenched, I think, and, and 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 have been spoken of before. So when I quote these brethren, I'm not necessarily endorsing these brethren or saying that I'm a I'm a fan of any of these brethren whatsoever or in, in any way. I'm just trying to show that there is there is other people out there who've looked at the subject and sort of come to similar conclusions. This is um, an extract from Brother H.P. Mansfield, and um, I suppose he would, he would represent a particular perspective or view in the Brotherhood, and I just found it interesting that he made a comment about the purpose of the judgment seat, which I, I think is, is, is quite appropriate, and, and, uh, and, and then I'm going to look at people like you know, Harry Whittaker and others and say, show that there is a bit of a consistent idea coming from, diff- from brethren from different corners of the vineyard, if you want to use that phrase, or from, from different um, perspectives. So, um, Brother H.P. Mansfield writes in this article, is the judgment seat necessary? That's the heading of his article. And he asks the question, is it not a clumsy contrivance to set up a judgment seat? Question mark. So, it seems a bit clumsy. From, it's, it's, very, it's very human, isn't it, to have a judgment seat where you call people in and check out what they've done. It just sounds, from, from God's you know, talking about God and his infinite knowledge, it sounds a bit, bit clumsy. He says, um, does not Yahweh already know the righteous from the wicked? Question mark. You know, isn't that, that's a fair question. Does Christ have to review our lives to determine whether we're worthy of reward or not? Is that, does that really need to happen? He says, many speak like this and thus give evidence that they do not appreciate, and I've got underlined, this is my underlining here, the real purpose of the judgment seat. Actually, the appearance of believers before the judgment seat is the final act of mercy on the part of a gracious God designed to fit them for the kingdom. Sort of what I've been saying up to this point. If we look inwards, we will recognise that we are not fit for association with Christ or for the bestowal of divine glory. We are conscious of our failings. We constantly sin, often in the same way. True, we bear these up to the Father and plead his forgiveness and strive to correct our faults, but then, again, in off-guarded moments, our weakness is often made manifest. Moreover, this is an important point, this is an important, and I'm going to sort of, sort of go on about this point a little bit through our studies, but I'm, I'm just sort of showing it's not just my point, there are, others have come to this conclusion. We're not always cognizant of our weaknesses. If we believe that we are, let us consider our brethren. Do we not observe faults that they reveal? Question mark. It's, it is so easy to see failings in others, so difficult to recognise them in us. Exclamation mark. The appearance of us all before the judgment seat of Christ will reveal us for what we are in the sight of God. How does Yahweh accomplish this? 
It is a process that begins when a person first comes to a knowledge of the truth in Christ Jesus and will continue until he stands before the judgment seat of Christ. By this process, flesh is humbled and the individual's character is perfected for the bestowal of life eternal. I just think that that really, in a way, captures some of the things that we're going to talk about this, this week together. The judgment seat is is not just a clumsy contrivance. It's not, it's, it seems to be very primitive, really, the, the concept of a judgment seat. It's something that we have in our own legal systems, our, our puny, sort of finite human legal systems have this judgment, have a judgment seat or have some sort of court process. Why would God need to do that? Um, it's really the purpose behind it that we need to get a handle on that, that makes sense of it. God doesn't need to do it for himself. God doesn't need to do it as a, as a culling process or anything. There's no need for God to have to delve into these things. But it's really for us. The benefit is ours. And God is fine-tuning us and developing us and perfecting us for the final part of the, the process that he first um, called us to to begin with. So hopefully that, that might help set some context. What we're going to do now is sort of drill down a little bit, as we said, and look at some of these verses a bit more slowly. And I want you to first turn to 1 Corinthians 3. That, uh, that Dane read for us this morning. And it's probably the closest we have to a judgment seat chapter in the Bible. As I said, there's not many. And there's only these little references tossed through, through other passages and other um, parts of the Bible that we have to go on. But here we've got a bit of a, a bit of a exposition, if you like, or a bit of a, a commentary that we can, we can delve into. Now, the background to this chapter is that I suppose many of us are aware of this, that the immaturity that the first century believers had, particularly here in Corinth, was manifest in a number of ways. But here, what is being dealt with is the fact that they stood behind leaders. And so they would get behind these champions or these, their leaders and they'd say, you know, I'm, I'm a Paul man, I'm of Paul. Uh, I'm a, another one would say, well, I'm of Apollos. And another one would say, well, I'm of Cephas or Peter. And they'd sort of divide up into these factions. And, and Paul here says that is really, really immature, really immature. And he's going to show why it's immature to try and stand behind a leader and try and think that if you stand behind a leader, that somehow some of his, his goodness or glory or uh, grandeur or spirituality or whatever somehow um, rubs off on you. Because uh, that's sort of what's, that's sort of behind the psychology of it, isn't it? The stand behind a leader is say, I'm of Paul, I'm, I'm like him, I'm as good as him, I'm basically him and, and um, I'm with him and, and, and so I, I sort of get the, the benefits that he would as well. So Paul hits this on the head very clearly and very quickly. He says, um, verse 4, or verse 3, he says, it's, he calls it carnal here in the authorised version. He says, you are carnal. Um, and there's this envy and strife that's going on, divisions. It's, it's carnal. It's, it's human. It's not divine sort of thinking. And then verse 4 he says, while one says I'm of Paul, another says I'm of Apollos. That's just immature human sort of thinking. This sort of partisan sort of sort of um, uh, way of, of, of approaching your religion. And he asks the question in verse 5 then, who's Paul really in the big scheme of things? Who's Apollos? They're, they're, they're not great figureheads. They're, they're they're just workers on behalf of God. They're doing a job. Yes, they might be gifted in this particular job or have the ability to carry it out, but at the end of the day, they're just brethren doing a job. 
and he says, um, who, who, who are Paul and Apollos? But they're just ministers or servants, really, as that word means, by whom ye believed, who sort of introduced the truth to you, even as the Lord gave to every man. Now, this little phrase, every man, is the key to this, the key to this passage. He's going to say it's not being behind a leader that's, that's important or that Jesus really will care about at the judgment seat. He doesn't care what leader you follow or what faction you belong to. It gets down to every man, what you've done as an individual. That's important. And that's this, this every man. If you're interested, you might want to underline it uh, in the text because it stands out and it helps us understand what's been said. Every man there in verse 5. Every man appears in verse 8. And, and even his own is another sort of similar concept. His own reward. And then again in verse 8, his own labour. Then in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, every man, take heed how he builds. Then in verse 12, any man. So you can see this, this concept. Verse 13, every man. Um, at the end of verse 13, every man again. Verse 14, any man. And then verse 15, if any man. So I'm not, I don't think I'm over emphasizing the importance of that little phrase in this in this chapter any man every man so it's it's drilling down to forget paul and apollos and trying to be um you know part of their entourage it's it's everyone's individual responsibility to grow spiritually and that's what's going to be looked at at the judgment seat now let's just move our way through the chapter he initially to illustrate this point he initially uses the metaphor of a field or a, or a garden um to try and explain what what the different roles of people are in in contributing to spiritual growth. He says, because he's Paul, of course, he's one of the the, the faction leaders that have been used. So he says in verse 6, I have planted, and Apollos, one of the other guys that you're sort of standing behind in these different factions, he's watered. And in a way, that's that's interesting because both of those men had different talents, and and Paul seems to be a good... (laughs) Earthbreaker, he can go to a new city and a new town and he can introduce the gospel in a, in a, in a brand new environment. Apollos was a very, apparently, a, a, a very good uh, orator and he was able to come along and help build up and, and motivate people and, and give good you know, exhortation and, uh, and, and comfort to people as, as a speaker. So they were both just workers for God. Maybe their roles were slightly different. Paul would break new ground, Apollos would come and give comfort and exhortation, but by and large, they were just servants of God carrying out a, a, a role. He says in verse 6, I've planted, Apollos watered, but, and this is really important for us to comprehend this, and in fact, this is going to be a, one of the sort of expositional bases of our whole week together. God gave the increase. That God made the plant grow. The miracle of growth is not really, and this, this is in the natural realm as well, the guy who throws a seed out and the guy who waters the paddock, they're not really doing anything too miraculous, but the miraculous bit is this dead seed springs to life and grows. And that's, that's us in this analogy here, or this metaphor here. God gave us the growth. And I, and I want us to think about the reality of that. When we come into Christ, a miracle happens. It really does. And, and this, we got, I think this is, this is really important for us to, to comprehend. When we come into Christ, we become a saint. We become, you know, God's word is, is, springs up in us. There's, you know, there's all those metaphors about the, the word of God taking root and growing in us. 
God is born in us in, in that sense. And it's not just theory, it really happens. Just like the, the plant grows in the, in the field, when we come into Christ, as a miracle takes place. Now, sometimes, you know, the, the impression I got, might be just because I'm a bit slow or whatever, but when I grew up in Sunday school and as a young person, the impression I got was when you got baptised, it was like you qualified for the Olympics. You, weren't, you, didn't, you, hadn't, you hadn't really achieved anything, but you just got into the game. You're allowed to, you're allowed to compete. And then the, your, your life in the truth was this, we often use the term, a journey or a probation. And, and, and it was up to, once you got in the game, then you eventually achieved the, the, the medal at the end of it or you got the reward at the end. And th- there's a flaw in that analogy. Yes, yes there are um, phrases in the Bible that talk about our journey and, and, and that we're on a... Uh, on a journey or on a growth, and there's and the and probation is one of those terms Dr. Thomas, you know, uses a lot in Elpis Israel, for example. But there's a flaw in that. I mean, it's 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 quite right in its in its proper context. But the way I perceive that was quite wrong. When the plant grows in this garden, whether whoever watered and planted, whether it was the brother who took me through for baptism, or you know the the the, 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 the auntie and uncle who gave me a really good spiritual. Um, example to follow. Whatever. They, they all contributed to this birth, but the growth came from God. It was a miracle. And I, become, I became a son of God when his word sort of was born in me, even though it was faint at the time. It, it, I still was a son of God. At that, at that moment of conversion and baptism, I became a son of God. And there was a miracle that occurred in that. In that. We can't underplay that. You know, the idea of probation Look, there's an element of truth in it. You know, when, when, a, when a young police officer you know, leaves the academy, he's a probationary constable. He still carries a gun. He still goes, he can still book people. He's still a policeman, but he's on this period of probation that says, well, if he does something that's really crazy and you know, fires a gun into a crowd of people, then he'll probably be asked to leave the force. He won't, he won't pass it at the end. But Nonetheless, he's still a policeman. You know, it's not like he's saying, we say, well, he's only on, he's still on probation. He's not a real policeman. He, he is. And as flawed as that example might be, I'm trying to get across to the point that we are saints right now. And Ephesians and Romans 8 and all those wonderful chapters emphasize that point. Anyway, so that's a, that's not the main point of what we're getting to this morning, but it's just something that's going to come up again, uh, in our studies as we go through. So God gives the increase and then it says, in verse 7, so that neither is he that plants anything. That's really, he's only, he's sort of just a vehicle of God, really. Neither he that waters is anything. The guy that comes along and gives us some good motivation in our life. Really, he's just a, a he's just an instrument of God. We shouldn't stand behind him and say, I'm with him because he's a good speaker or he knows all his quotes or whatever. They're just, they're just people that God's using to help your growth. But the real miracle is God's. It says, but, and he repeats this phrase from verse 6, but God gives the growth, gives the increase. You see, so it's, our, our spiritual birth is due to God. It's real. Now, he says in verse 8, he that plants and he that waters, that's Paul and Apollos, they're working together and they're, they're, they're carrying out a job. They are one. But every man, now this is really important, every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labour. Okay? So it's not about what faction you belong to. It's you will receive your own reward according to your own labour. And then he brings this, this part of the metaphor to a head in verse 9. For we are labourers together with God, me and Apollos. We're one. Just little work. We're working together. Yes, we might have different skill sets or different um, you know, roles, but we're still one unit working together, don't divide us up 
But you are God's husbandry. Now that's what the AV's got. Any other translations of a better rendition of husbandry? In verse 9. God's field, that's, that's really the best one, I think. God's field, God's farm, God's garden, if you like. We're God's garden. So all of us here are little plants that are springing up in God's garden. God's miraculously grown us in his garden. Yes, so he had other brethren and sisters involved in that whole process of our spiritual growth and conversion, but God's the one who made us grow in this garden. So that's a, it's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? And it really puts the perspective of, you know, not... not not sort of looking up too much to those people that God uses, but looking to God himself as the, the originator of that miracle. But now he, he leaves the metaphor of the garden, because the metaphor of the garden is powerful, but it, it, there, there are some other intricacies that he wants to introduce to this story, to this, this narrative. So he moves from that metaphor of the garden, and he says, you are God's husbandry, you're God's garden, but you are also God's building. And now we're gonna, the metaphor will change into this, from an agricultural metaphor, now I'm going to change into a sort of architectural sort of construction metaphor of a building. But it's the same argument that's coming through dealing with the same problem and the same issue. So, so keep that in mind as well. So he says, um, you are God's building at the end of verse 9. According to the grace of God which has given me as a wise master builder. So now he's not just a planter of seed, which he was in the first metaphor. Now he's actually a builder, a master builder. He says, I have laid the foundation. That's, that's equivalent to planting the seed, if you, if you want to use, use that. And another has built thereupon. Um, but, he makes this point again, verse, at the end of verse 10, every man, let every one of us take heed how we build thereupon. Now, he's going to go into the foundation and tell us a bit more about that in verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay then that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I've laid this foundation. And in a sense, then the foundation, if you want to compare the two metaphors, the foundation becomes equivalent to or synonymous with the garden of God. So we want to just try and transpose those ideas. So we're little plants in God's garden. Let's move to the next metaphor where we're impregnated into a foundation, if you like. This foundation is Jesus Christ. But where the other metaphor sort of stopped there, this metaphor says, yep, you're in Christ in the foundation, but there's a process that's going to continue on in your life of building, and you're going to build your life on, on that foundation. So it goes a little bit further and brings our involvement into it a bit more uh, starker than, than does the, the, the plant foundation, which relies totally on God. So we'll see the difference as we go through. I hope I'm making sense. Um, so he says in verse 10, Therefore, he says, I'm the master builder. I've laid the foundation. Another builds thereon. Let every man take heed how he builds. I've already read that, sorry. Verse 11, for, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is Christ. Verse 12, now if any man build upon this foundation, and he lists in descending order a list of building material. In descending order, I mean of, of value and quality. And he says, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Now notice he doesn't say he doesn't say end in there. I think this is interesting. He doesn't say as we're building our house, so we're all impregnated into this foundation, which is Christ. In our life, then we build on that foundation. He doesn't say some of us build gold houses, some of us build silver houses. The reality is, all our houses are pretty much a mixture. We all have we as we build in the truth in our lives in Christ, 
We build sometimes with gold, sometimes with silver, sometimes with precious stones, sometimes with wood, sometimes with hay, and sometimes with stubble. And it's just a, you know, they're just listed there rather than saying that we build our whole house out of those things. And then what happens is we, we build our house during our life in Christ, and then at a stage in the future, it says in verse 13, our work's going to be inspected, examined, and actually put to the test. And he says in verse 13, every man, is that, is that word again? Every man's work shall be made manifest. Now, that word is a real special judgment seat word. We're going to come back to that probably uh, maybe Thursday. That word's the word fanaru. And this word pops up in nearly every judgment seat verse. This word fanaru is a very special word. We'll come to it later on. But it means to be, to be revealed or opened up, if you like, or to be unclothed and, and made naked and all, all these different concepts around that word. So our work, which is our house that we're building on, on the foundation of Christ, will be manifest, will be opened up to, for examination. And it says, for the day shall declare it. Now, in some translations... I think NIV, etc. The, the day is there in capital, you know, capital T and D. The day. It's it's really got the concept of this is the day of of judgment. It's it's a a phrase that runs through the Old Testament. The day of God. The, the day of God Almighty. You know, this is the day. So, at some stage in the future, there will be um, an examination of the house that we have built in our personal life, and that day will declare it because it shall be. Revealed, it's another interesting Greek word, apocalypse, it'll be, it'll be revealed by fire. Our house will be made known and, and, and exposed by fire. And the fire shall try, that word try is another word, another judgment seat word, it means to examine. So our, our, the fire is going to examine every man's work of what sort it is. So our house is going to be, and I'll try to illustrate some of these points. So here's the house. The foundation is Jesus Christ, and we are in him. As I said, that's not something we've done that we can take credit for, really. That was done when we were, we, we were baptised or we were converted and, and the word of God came into our lives. It was like the, when God gave the increase and the plant sprung up, that's a miracle. You know, the plant springing up, that is us being um, placed upon and built into the very foundation of Christ. No credit to us, that's a work of grace, isn't it? Secondarily, though, in our life, we build upon this foundation and we can build using gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay and stubble. So we call, just for the sake of uh, description here, we're calling the house the superstructure. It's the bit above the foundation and the foundation is the substructure. Now, whose work is the substructure? I think we've made that very clear, hopefully. That's God's work. That's the... That's the work of Christ and our conversion, our calling, our, you know, all those things. That's God's work that he's done. That's a work of grace. The building on top is our work. And it says that very... I said that in verse 13. Let me just remind myself what it says. Every man's work. So this is not God's work. This is our own work. Will be tried. As the end of verse 13 says, every man's work of what sort it is. So our work's going to be examined. And then verse 14 says, as a result of this examination, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, as a result of this examination, 
verse 14, if any man's work abide, it says in the AV, I know other translations have remain. If any man's work remain after this fire is applied, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. Now reward's another uh, word we're going to explore through this week. So there's going to be a reward that happens if our work survives. But, verse 15, if any man's work is burned, he shall suffer loss. Now I'm just going to try and, um, try and illustrate this. This is Darren's house. My house. Okay. That you can all see that. So Darren's house is, is, is built into this foundation. Can everyone see that foundation? It's a serious brick that I picked up at Bunnings. Okay, it's falling apart here. So there's a pretty strong foundation and there's a house that's built on top of that foundation. Darren's house. Okay. This is the house that I've built in my life. Is this house built with gold, silver, precious stone, or is it built with stubble and uh, hay and wood? You can see gold and silver and precious stones are sort of um, rare things, aren't they? They're not, they're not everyday items. They're rare, they're precious. And things like hay, wood and stubble are things you find laying around. They're sort of everyday um, commodities that you see everywhere. So have I built my house with things that are precious, things that are, that are, in God's eyes are really valuable and precious, or have I built it with just common everyday building materials? We'll find out. Kids, do not do this at home. Right. Well, parents can, that's right. So we're just going just gonna to test this out. I think it's MasterChef, don't you? All right, so... At the judgment seat, I go to the judgment seat and my life is put under, a, under the torch, if you like, by the, the fire that it talks about there in, in 1 Corinthians. So we apply the torch and see, does it remain, does it burn, or is it substantial, is it gold and silver that will remain? And I say, look, I've, I think there's some things that are precious, there's things that are made of silver and gold. For example, I you know, flew all the way to Perth to do some studies. That, that, you think you think that would be a? I'm starting to faint here. You think you think that would be a, a gold precious stone sort of thing? And, and the, the torch is applied, and it's like, well, you just did that so, you know, everyone thinks how spiritual you are. You're just trying to. So so what you thought was precious and worth worth worthwhile and gold, the torch reveals it was really just wood and stubble. It was just for my own ego or for my own you know, for my own recognition and so people would say how spiritual I am. And there's, you know, there's no doubt there's truth in, in, in that. So the torch really, really goes through and looks at all my things. You know, I'm, I think I'm very hospitable. I invite people home all the time and I'm a hospitable guy. The torch gets applied to that and um, really that's just because you like food. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, and, and you're hoping to get invited back to their place for a barbie. So what you thought was really, really... Uh, Spiritual. Now this house is surviving more than I'd planned, so I'm going to keep hammering away. <laughs> it's it's more resilient than I thought. So we'll just uh, come on, burn. Um, so what happens? Just run out of run out of gas. There. I'm sure that's not going to happen at the real one. Um, let's just pretend that house is burnt to the ground. This is Darren's house. Now where do where do I stand here? Yeah, keep an eye on that for me. Will you? <laughs> there is some water there at hand if we need it. Now, at the end of the day, have I built with, with gold and silver? So let's just go to look at what that might mean. You know, gold, as I said, is precious and something that's valuable and rare. 
And that would be, you know, the things that Jono's talking about this weekend, the, the Sermon on the Mount and that, that approach to life, which is, you know, counterintuitive when you, you love your enemies and you turn the other cheek. They sort of, they're, they're rare things. There's a fire going over there and the, the glasses aren't quite, you know, linking it all together, so it's a bit scary. Um, they're, they're things that aren't natural, aren't they? To love your enemy, to turn the other cheek, to go two miles when you're asked to go one, all these things. They're, they're rare commodities that I'm, if, if I follow, I'm building my life upon. So, you know, gold, silver, precious stones, they're, you know, where I've been persecuted or I've had things said against me and I've suffered quietly. I haven't sort of, sort of, sort of gone off in a rage and had a, a major hissy fit. Or I've turned the other cheek when something bad's been done to me. When I've gone unrewarded for things that I've, I've done, uh, in God's service and no one's noticed and no one's even given me any credit for it well that would be gold and silver and where I've showed obedience to God you know, um, resisted temptation where I've resisted temptation and gone against my natural feelings that are selfish and self-centred um, that is gold you know, it's, that's gold we have a saying in New South Wales that's gold I don't know if you say that over here as much um, where I've shown love to others that's gold as well however on the negative side, I could be filled with wood, hay and stubble. These are, these are common things. They're just, you find them laying around the camp here, don't you? Wood, hay and stubble, they're just anywhere. And it's just how everyone lives their life. Um, it's, you know, it could be worldliness and just, just wanting to enjoy the, the pleasures of sin for a season, as, as Hebrews 11 mentions. Could be legalism and tradition. They're just, they're just human, um, you know, human motives, but clothed with some sort of, sort of spiritual cloak. Smugness, bitterness, envy, bad habits, you know, not, not fighting against temptation and just giving into it, undeserved reputation, unconfessed sin that I might have. These are all wood, hay and stubble. And so when the torch is applied to my life at the judgment seat, what's, what's left? What's there that, that may be left after the torch is applied? And you think, well, this is still a pretty scary prospect and it's, and it is, it is daunting and we're going to talk about the reality of that. But let's just follow through what Paul says about this process. Verse 14 again. If any man's work survives, which he has built thereupon, he's going to receive a reward. We'll come back to that. But, verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned. Now this word burned, this word burned, it doesn't mean singed. It doesn't mean just, because you could imagine, well, all our houses are going to be singed to a degree. We've all got... Um, mixed motives in our life and things that are different. This word actually is, in, if you look up Strong's Concordance, katokai, means to burn down, this is Strong's definition, to burn to the ground, that is to consume wholly and burned up utterly. And all these other translations, from the NIV to the Amplified Bible, they use burned up to, to capture the real meaning of that word. So our house can be totally burnt to the ground at the judgment seat. We will suffer loss of rewards... And we will receive a, a reduced reward, if you like. But, this is the, this is the crux of our, of our study this morning. He himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, this, this is an interesting concept, isn't it? And for some of you who've never looked at this before, it's probably going to be, you're going to resist it. Because it just, again, sounds a bit counterintuitive and it sounds against... Again, a bit against what we've always been led to believe. So at the judgment seat, I could have my house burnt to the ground and still be saved. Now, how is, how is looking at this little picture here, how come, on what basis, 
Could my house be burned and yet I'm still saved? In that little analogy. Why? Anyone want to hazard a... The brick, the brick, that's it, that's awesome. This torch did nothing to the brick, didn't affect the brick at all. Couldn't affect the brick, the brick's impregnable, it, 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 the brick's eternal, it's there, it's, it's in Christ, and we are in Christ, we are in the foundation. By grace, we're in that foundation. Yes, we're expected to build upon that foundation, and that will be examined, and that will be judged in a sense, and we'll have to give account for what we've done, and the torch will reveal it, and our motives will be open, but at the end of the day, even if in the case of our house being burnt to the ground, we are still saved, yet so as by fire. There's a refining process that will take place to prepare us to get rid of all the dross, to get rid of the wood, to get rid of the hay, get rid of the stubble, and prepare us for immortality. And that, that's, a, that's a very powerful little word picture there. Again, just to show that this is just not... I'm not making this up myself. Um... This is from Brother Alfred Norris in his Acts and Epistles book. He's the brother who wrote the Gospel of Mark and the book on Peter. And he comments on 1 Corinthians 3. He says, There will be a special blessing for those who have been found to have built durably. So if you're built with good quality materials in your life, you'll get a special blessing. Not just immortality, not just eternal life. I want to say just, that's probably not the right word. Not only immortality. You'll receive a special blessing. But he says, and this is a bit I've underlined, even for the remainder, salvation is not to be denied, but there will be the inevitable shame and sorrow of having one's faults exposed by the purifying fire of the Lord's presence. It seems plain that no one can be made perfect on that day without his residual faults being made known to him and admitted and purged. Most of God's servants will have blemishes uncorrected beforehand which must be brought to light. And he quotes here Luke 12. We'll get, we might look at that tomorrow, about some will receive few and many stripes. Now, that's an interesting concept we don't think about a lot. And that, as I said, from Brother, Brother Norris. So this, this, is the, this, is, this is an interesting, and this is probably, as I said, one of the most detailed judgment seat pictures we really have in the whole of Scripture. And it's quite an interesting uh, perspective. Saved, even though the house itself doesn't survive. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I must say there is another way of reading this chapter, um, which I've, obviously I don't agree with necessarily, but I suppose, and you can see why there's this other view on it, I suppose, um, and it's dealt with in Western Scriptures by Brother Abel because he's, he's dealing with uh, people using Scripture and taking it to a wrong, um, a, a wrong extreme, if you like, and so he's combating things like... Um, universal salvation and um, immortal emergence and, thing, and things, these, these sort of doctrines that he's trying to deal with. So he, he gives a different interpretation, which I've heard other brethren uh, use. I haven't heard anyone actually write, I haven't seen it written, but I've heard it spoken, um, that says that this chapter is not talking about everyday people like you and me. It's talking about, about teachers and builders and it's talking about their work. So um, the teacher could go, you know, I could go to a town and, and preach the truth and, 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 and at the end of the day everyone could leave it and my work could be burnt to the ground and I don't um, have any success in that work but I'm still saved even though my work is all burnt up. Can, can you see the, what I'm saying? That is that, that's an alternate way. Now I don't, I don't believe, first I don't believe it follows the flow of the chapter and I don't believe it answers the actual questions of standing behind Paul and Apollos and uh, and Cephas and all that sort of stuff. So, so I, I don't agree with it. And I'll just put it there 
for you, just to show that you know there is other another view. So in rested scriptures, in rested scriptures, brother Abel says um, the day of judgment will reveal the spiritual quality of a preacher's converts. So it's not my so my house is how good my converts are that I've brought to the truth. Um, so if a man's work abides, and he says if his converts continue on to eternal life, then he's rewarded by seeing them in the kingdom. But if they're rejected, he suffers this sense of loss because his converts are rejected and he sees them. He sees his labour all come to naught. Now, I, I, I can see where he's coming from and I can see why he wants to, to do that because of, because of, you know, you look at the problem he's dealing with. But I don't think it's really, it's really a fair representation of what, what's been said here in 1 Corinthians 3. And if, hopefully if you follow through that argument, follow through exactly what the problem is that Paul's dealing with, you'll see the, I think the interpretation I've given and you know, that Brother Norris uh, sort of arrives at as well and, and, and other Bible commentators that it is about every man's responsibility to build. And that's really what I think it's about. All right, we better move on. The next sort of body of evidence we're going to look at. No, actually, here's, here's another. No, no, I've already, re- already read that one. I suppose you can. Some of you would have already seen and thought about this connection with, you know, First Peter that talks about our our faith being tried by fire. That is a process that happens in our life now. That there's there's fire, which in the sense is trial and and problems in our life that is developing us and refining our faith. And, and that is so true, but the judgment seat is like an accelerated process of that happening to us in a, in a much more sort of intense way. That, that fire is applied and, and our character is refined. It has to be sort of sped up, if you like, and, and, and finalised before we're given immortality. As First Peter says, The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found. And look at, look at the positiveness of this. So our, our faith is found unto praise, honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see again the, the positive picture of our uh, appearance before Christ using those words. Okay, we're going to finish up now by thinking about another, another body of evidence on the, on the judgment seat story based upon this concept of a book that runs through the Bible. It starts right back in Exodus and goes right to you know, the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. This idea of, of a book... It's called the Book of Life. Now, I'm going to ask the question, do you, think, do you think the Book of Life, it can either be a book, of, a book of lives that if your name's in it, you're in the Book of Life and you're in God's life plan, or is it a book of your life where it's got a book of, book of Darren where all my life is, is recorded in, in this book. So it's either a list of people in the, who are going to be in God's, through God's grace in his kingdom, the book of life. So it's a book of names or, or lives that are going to be saved. Or is it a book of my life, a book of the, the details of my life? Now, I'm going to just ask everyone, just, just quick, just, just your first response. Do you think it's a book of life with a list of names? Put your hand up. Okay. Do you think it's a book of my life with, with my life in it? Put your hand up for that. Not that many. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, you jump. You go. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's it. <laughs> okay. Good. Good point. Good point. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. That's right. No. No. Yeah. You're spot on. That's good. That's good. So, as I said, we've got this: the book of life, which, which we will say is the book of those in it will be in the will be in the kingdom. The book of life. If your name's the book of life, 
or a book of lives, which details all our lives that God has uh, in, an, in a book. Could call it the days of our lives, but no one would know what I'm talking about, of course. Like sand through an hourglass. So, yes, had a few days off school myself over the years. <laughs> so, so let's let's uh, let's try and work out. Now we haven't got time to really look at each of these references. So what I've done to try and speed up this process. Uh, here's a, here's a question: uh, Is it a book of names of those saved? And if it, oh yeah, so I've got to link it back to. So if it is a book of if it's a book of names, if your name's in the book of life, you are, you are saved. I suppose that, that book, if that was the book, it would sort of support the short view, wouldn't it? You'd say, well, your name's in the book of life. It's not too much drama to go, uh, you know, T for Taporis, yeah, Jamie and Luke, they're goners. But Darren, yes, you're in. Okay, so that'd be, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be quick to do. So that would, that support the short view. If it's a book of my whole life, Man, that would be a long thing, you know. You were born in 1966. You went to this school, and here is, you know, the, no, that's, a, that's another too much television references here. Um, so, my life is examined by God. My thoughts, my actions, my motivations. That would support. If it was that book, it would support the long view, wouldn't it? The long view being a detailed examination. So, which which one of these books is it, and which which then view does it support? Okay, I've put some references up here and I've just given out some slips to people. This, could you now, those who have the slips, could you uh, look them up for us? Because it'll take too long if we all do it. And if we all just listen as they read it, if you could read it nice and loud when we get to it, I want you to say whether you think it's a book of, the book of life, as in your name is in this book and you're saved, or is it the book of lives, talking about your, the details of your life. So the first one, whoops, Exodus 32, who has that one? Thanks. Do you want to read that nice and loud for us? Just the verse, just verse 32 as well. I think that's it. So listen. <coughs> Yet now if thou wilt forgive them their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Okay, here's a, the context of the, the golden calf, and Moses is saying, blot me out of the book which you have written. So which book do you reckon that is? What's the consensus there? Oh. But, okay, so it's the book of... A call on this column names. It's a book of those who are in God's book and you can be blotted out. And that word blotted out basically means to be erased. So in, in, in case, there, are, there are cases where we go into that book of life at baptism, we're God's people if we're in that book of life, but that we, can, we can by our own actions put ourselves outside that book and have our name erased. So that's interesting. The next one, Psalm 56, 8. Who, who are we up to there? Thanks. Thou hast taken into account of my wanderings, put my tears in thy bottle, are they not in my book? Okay, this is a bit interesting. What do you reckon that one is? Lives, isn't it? It's about your wanderings, your tears. So it's, it's your life events. There's a book that God has. And I, of course, we don't think it's necessarily a literal, you know, carbon-based book. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's in God's infinite you know, memory, however that works. So there's some mechanism that God has where he records all our... All the days of our lives, to use that phrase again. So we'll stick that in this column here, life events. Psalm 69, 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Okay, what do you reckon that one is? Okay, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? The, the concept is linked to this idea of citizenship as well, where in a city back in ancient times, 
in a city, the sitters, the real citizens of the city had their name enrolled in this, in this book and they then belonged, they had certain status, they had certain rights and, and, uh, and they, were, they were differentiated from strangers and sojourners and slaves, etc. And they, they, they had this special privilege. In a sense, we're in God's book. We are God's saints. We are his special people. We are um, his sons and, and, and it gives us that, that status as well. Psalm 139, this is an interesting one. 39 verse 16. Oh, thanks, Mark. Your eyes saw me when I was inside the womb. All the days ordained for me were recorded in your scroll before one of them came into existence. What do you reckon that one is? That's it. That's, that was good because the, the, the King James really butchers that up a fair bit. So that was, that was nice. That, that sort of put it... In the, in the King James, it's got the word continuance, which just means days, basically. If you look at the word, the word just means days. So... Um, it's again the book of our, our, our life events. In interesting, Psalm 139 says it was written before we were even born, that, that book. So you know, try and work that out. Daniel, uh, yeah, Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. What do you think that one? Again, back to name again. Thank you for that. Malachi 3, this is one we all know. Did I give that one to someone? I think we all know that one. Won't we look at that one? We know in that Malachi 3 that those who fear God and thought upon his name, you know, a book was, remembrance was written for them, and, and etc. So we'll put that one in that column as well. Luke ten twenty. this is an awesome one. Who, anyone got that? No? Oh, sorry. <coughs> that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Thank you. Now, this is a really interesting one because this is the story where the, uh, the apostles got a little, little foretaste of what would come later on at Pentecost, and they were given uh, some sort of limited um, Holy Spirit experience, and they were sent off in twos to, to do miracles. And you can imagine the, the kudos they got from that. So they're out there healing people and healing people that are mentally ill, etc., and healing all these people. And um, they come back and they just, it's the, when they come back, it says they're overjoyed. They're like fully pumped up and big smiles. And they're all so, this is, you know, telling each other, guess what I did? And the whole village came out and saw me do this and that. And they're all sort of excited about it, which is fair enough. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that this, that, you know, that this, these diseases are subject unto you that you've had this power. He said, rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Okay? Your names are in God's book. And now, think of the stage of their life when this was written. They were still very immature. They still had to desert him at the, at the, at the arrest and, and Peter had to deny him. And they still had a long, 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 long way to go in their spiritual development. But even at that point, the very fact that they had joined with Jesus and left their fishing boats or their, the seat of custom or whatever, they, whatever it was, they joined with Jesus... Their names were now written in heaven, in, that, in God's book. And they were God's special people. They were God's sons. They were, they were saints and they were then in God's book of life. Not perfect by any means. Not even spiritually mature. They, were, they had all sorts of issues and problems and a lot of growth to go through. But nonetheless, they were in the book. And Jesus says, don't rejoice about the great works you're doing and your recognition you're getting and all these sort of things. Rejoice that your name's in heaven. And mate, if we apply that to ourselves... That should be the most incredible thing in our life when you think about it, that our names as saints are written in heaven. That should supersede any achievement or any recognition or anything else that you could possibly even imagine. So, okay, let's quickly move on. 
Philippians 4.3, actually, I haven't given this one, we'll, we'll all turn this one up if that's alright. Philippians 4, the New Testament. Oh, I have given it to you, sorry, okay. You can turn it up if you so desire. Sorry, I haven't given that one up. Sorry, brother. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which laboured with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow labourers, whose names are in the book of life. Okay, now the reason this is interesting, thank you for that. The reason this is really interesting, I don't know if you know the backstory, uh, the backstory to Philippians, but there was these two sisters. They seem to be pretty dominant personalities, Euodius and Syntyche, and they seem to be having a bit of a tug of war of power in this in this ecclesia, and that seems to be sort of behind a lot of the appeals that Paul makes for you know humility and submitting one to another and all those sorts of things and. Now, these two sisters are at each other's throat or fighting, which is a pretty horrible thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's totally against the Sermon on the Mount principles, totally against the Spirit of Christ, totally against the, 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 the values that you know, God would be pleased with, you know, the meek and quiet spirit and, and, and humility and meekness, all these things that we, we know are gold, they're gold and precious stone type building materials. They're building with, you know, with straw that they found under the under the dog kennel, you know, it's, it's really, it's really base and really, really base stuff. Yet, yet, when Paul refers to them, he says their names are in the book of life. And this is what I'm trying to, I'm trying to get across. The miracle of conversion, the miracle of baptism, put your name in the book of life. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you're going to get it right all the time. Doesn't mean you're not going to go through phases in your life where you totally make mistakes and you have a wrong perspective on on your role and your position and your and, and, and the view, how you view others and all sorts of things. You're going to learn through all that and it's a, it's a growth and development that God's working with you as children. doesn't mean you, you pop in and out of salvation every day when you do something wrong and then when you do something right you pop back into salvation in some sort of in and out sort of process. You are in the book of life as were Euodius and Syntyche with all their, all their little problems. And if you want to read up on this, um, Brother Barling's book, Letter to the Philippians... Um, he, say, he says, who, who are these yoke fellows Paul requests, us, requests to lend a hand in effecting the reconciliation of Euodius and Syntyche? And he, and he talks about this whole verse and, and, and about the context of it and, and who Paul is referring to. That these sisters are the ones that Paul is writing about when he and includes them in the names of those that are written in the book of life. So these sisters with this, this issue happening... We're still in the book of life, and just keep that in mind. Yes, if they never repented and they, um, the Christ had returned and they were judged before they repented, they, their house would be burnt to smithereens, wouldn't it? And, and they would, they would, their house and their, their superstructure would be consumed. But they're still in the book of life. All right, let's move along. Hebrews twelve. Did I give that to anybody? Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's that's awesome. That again is linking this idea of the the citizenship idea, where your name was written in this book, um, register that you were a, a, a citizen of that town, and, and you had certain privileges associated with that. Now, just to finish off, we'll go to the ones in Revelation. Well, we haven't got time to look at all of them, but it starts in Revelation, and this book of life runs all the way through the book of Revelation. We'll look at um, maybe look at the first and the last one. Let's go to Revelation three verse five. <coughs> And this hopefully will bring it to a bit of a head and link these books together. 
what appears to be two books together. Revelation 3 verse 5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. So again, there's a bit of a judgment seat concept there, isn't there? And his name not being blotted out of the book of life. And then you can follow all those other ones through, uh, if you like, in the comfort of your own own home. Uh, let's just go to the very last one, Revelation 20, because this is quite a, this is quite lovely. So we're going right to the end of the Bible here. Jeez, uh, Revelation 20. Now, just just a bit of context here. This is a judgment seat picture, but it's at the end of the millennium. So that, that, that it's called the second judgment. So the first judgment is the one that we will be part of. And then there will, of course, be mortals still living in the thousand-year period with us as their priests and their kings, etc. And then there's a judgment for them at the end of the thousand years. So it's not exactly the same picture that that relates to us, but I'm sure the concepts are similar. Now, he says in verse 12... uh, Okay, just while we're reading, just keep this in mind. There, There are books, plural, mentioned here. And there are books, a book singular. So let's just go through and look at this and put it together. Verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books... I did that for emphasis just in case you want The books were open. So these are plural books. And another book was opened. So you've got books and another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. Where, where were they judged out of? They were judged out of the things written in the books according to their works. So the judgment happened and was based upon what they'd done in their life. Their works were, were, were judged and examined out of the plural books, the books that make up the life of, of Darren, for example. However, where does the verdict come from in all this? Run your eyes down to verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see the interaction between these books. The verdict was based on the book, singular. The judgment, the examination of our lives, like the blowtorch on the, on the house out there, was based on the books, the books that record our life events. So try to put this together. We have their books, plural, as opposed to a book singular. This book, or these books, sorry, are the book of your life. And of course, they're metaphorical concepts, of course, but, but they give us an insight into how it all works. The book of your life records your life events. We're judged out of that. And yet there's another book called the book of life, whether your name's in it or not in it, is, is relevant. As we said before, the books would probably correlate to the long view of the judgment seat, that your whole life is examined over, you know, the course of your life's examined and, and dealt with. That would sort of relate to the books, plural. The short view, as I said, would gravitate to the book of life and say, well, you know, it's a very easy process to look up a book. The, the, the books, plural, are based on works, as we saw there in, uh, in, in I think it was verse, um, verse 12, was the, the, the the, the works are what are, are judged there in that particular process, but the verdict is based upon the book, singular, the book of life. So the books 
and what we do and what we've done in our life are related to our actions or to use another term, works that we've, we've carried out or done or haven't done. Whereas whether we are in or out is based upon grace, our position before God, that we are in his book. And I suppose then to, to link it to yesterday's study, the, the book's plural would sort of relate to the, the whole talent parable, wouldn't they, where we have to give account of what we've done, whereas the book singular relates back to the parable of the sheep and goats, where you're a sheep or you're a goat, and, and, and the process is very clear. And relating it to this little um, example here with the blowtorch, the, the, book of, the book of our life and our life events relates to the house that, is, that has a torch applied to it, and the book singular that we are in and saved by relates to the foundation that we are in as a result of our conversion. Now, hopefully that makes sense. Just going to, I am literally, I'm going to finish now, not just pretending. Um, <laughs> just to try and illustrate the, 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 the sort of emotional difference here. You, you might be not, not sort of getting it, but let's, let's do a, a, a pretend, um, a pretend judgment seat. Let's pretend I'm a, I'm a rich nobleman in ancient Rome and, uh, and you don't mind if you're the subject here. You're, you're a slave. You're Spartacus, all right? You're my slave. And I, as a rich nobleman, am going to judge you to see whether, and the results are rather extreme, if you're found worthy, I'm going to give you your own farm, your own property. You can take a wife because you're a slave. You've got no rights, but I'm going to make you a free man. Take a wife, have a family. You'll be also a rich man and part of the aristocracy and you'll be elevated to greatness in, in Rome. However, if you're not worthy... I'm going to skin you alive and crucify you and your whole family. That's pretty gross, isn't it? But, but I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make extremes here. So, because, because the judgment seat outcome is pretty extreme when you think about the, the, the results. Now, which book I start with really will have a big bearing on the whole, your, your experience here. Let's, let's say I'm going to start on with the book of your life. Spartacus boy, while you've been working with me, these are the things that have been reported. Um, at a festival we had last week, you pinched about half a kilo of prawns when no one was looking and took them back to your room. Okay, try and imagine the emotion that Spartacus is feeling now. All of a sudden it's not going so well. He can see himself writhing in pain, being crucified upside down or whatever, and, and his family killed before him. It's, it's a pretty horrible prospect. It'd be hard to even, you know, remain your bowels intact if you want to be really, you know, really disgusting here. But, but it's a pretty serious sort of situation. I'm try, trying to just get to the, the emotions here. It's a pretty thing. But, 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 I mentioned also, the day after though, you worked a bit longer in the yard and I, you swept up all the leaves and you, you know, no one asked you to do that. No, that was pretty good. And it's like, ah, ah, ah. But the next day, ah, and then after that, you're ah, oh, ah, ah. it's like, ah, ah, ah. It's, it's a pretty horrible situation. Would you agree? Smart, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, master. Yes, master. Okay. I'll switch it round and say, okay, instead of starting with that book, we're going to start with this book. Well done, Spartacus. Well done, my boy. Give me a hug. You are worthy and you're going to be part of my, part of my family. I'm going to adopt you as my son. <laughs> okay, that's pretty nice. However, before we move on, you're going to be running your own farm now. You're going to have responsibilities. You're going to have people looking up to you. You're going to have people working for you. I just, there are some things we need to talk about. And I noticed some things that in your life you, you, you lack a little bit of 
you know, respect for others and you lack, you know, sometimes you're a bit harsh on, on some of the other workers and whatever, whatever, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's getting a bit close here, I guess. Yes, I, I got, did a bit of delving into it, you know. <laughs> and pinching the prawns, you know, that, that you know, that, that's me really. So I'm, I'm, project, I'm, I'm projecting there. I'm <laughs> hoping that, that sort of illustrates it and, and it changes the whole judgment seat picture a little bit, doesn't it? If, if we try and see it from that perspective, we try and say, well, yes, there is the sheep and goat scenario. I'm not saying that's not daunting. Of course it's daunting. You know, going for a job interview is daunting. That, that's that's going to be a, a, a serious emotional thing, but it's not the devastating, you know, gut-wrenching emotions that, that you can only possibly imagine would be the result of a, of a, of a verdict-based process after which your life is examined, you know. So, so hopefully, I know I've mumbled and stumbled all through this th- this morning, but I, ho- I hope it makes some sort of sense and I hope it's starting to crystallise a, a picture of the judgment seat that will get clearer as we look at some other scriptures as well. Thanks for that, everyone.